From Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I want to start with a little bit of an unorthodox way this morning. I mentioned before that I was with the young adults on their retreat, and I know several of them will listen to the recording of this sermon, and so I I told them that I would confess to something, and I'm going to do that. I confess that I was... Convinced that I have been saying an important word wrong for a very long time. And so uh, uh, several people have said this to me. And here is the thing. When I say the word worship, I have been absolutely convinced that that's a proper way to pronounce it. And a little part of me still is. But, but we, did, we did look into it. And while other English-speaking countries do pronounce this word worship... In America, it is pretty widely accepted that it is a worship kind of word. And so, so is it worship or worship? I, uh, I was berated and my self-esteem chipped away at, and I was guilted into changing my ways. And so from here on, I will endeavor to say worship. And I can't wait to hear about those listening to it and how they feel like I represented that discussion that happened. Uh, Since I had to make a change, I felt like I should at least make them feel as bad as possible. So that uh, that was what that was about. We're in a series about the book of Jonah called Rejected Grace. Uh, Pastor Ben and and Randy Keller have done an excellent job in the last few weeks um, during this series of helping us draw out the really deep meanings of this story. And today we're looking at chapter 3, which is about repentance. And our single sentence sermon summary this morning is this. Repentance requires us to turn toward God and to nurture a heartfelt passion for his will. Let's say that again. Repentance requires us to turn toward God and to nurture a heartfelt passion for his will. So first, I want to say a few words of background about the book of Jonah. I assume by now, either from the times that you have read and heard this story, or the several weeks that we've gone through it, you'll notice that there's some some very strange things in this story that's kind of nestled away in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. 
And the, the strangeness of the story should lead us to ask a few questions. And I want to talk about two of those questions really briefly. The first one is this. What kind of a story is Jonah? It's a story, it's a narrative, right? What kind of a story is it? And the second question I want to ask is, who is the story about? So what kind of story and who's it about? As far as what kind of a story is Jonah, people usually think it's one of two things. Either it's a retelling of a real historical event, or it's a parable, a story with, with an important meaning that may not have actually literally happened. Now, I want to tell you that as with most things, I think that the truth is somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. I do want to say that either one of those answers is acceptable. It is okay for us to have parables in the Bible. If you don't believe that, you can just read the Gospels. It's also okay if this is absolutely 100% exactly what happened. But I think actually it's both. I think that the book of Jonah is an autobiographical parable. I think it's a story from the prophet Jonah's life, and he tells it in a way that teaches an important lesson about God's grace. You could say it this way. The book of Jonah is a testimony. A testimony. First of all, if it's historical at all, there can only be one person who wrote it, right? Because an entire chapter of the book takes place while Jonah is in the belly of a fish. There was probably not another eyewitness that could share what Jonah's experience was like in the belly of the fish. If it's historical, it's probably written by Jonah, and I think it is. But if it's historical, it's a very, very strange story. In fact, you could say that there's something very fishy about it. I was proud of that one. Thank you. Jonah has four chapters, but, but I like to think that if there was a chapter five, we'd see another and deeper repentance from the prophet Jonah. I like to think, although I can't prove it, that the book of Jonah is him sometime later reflecting on his own sinfulness and recording the story of how God began to really, truly change his heart. So the next question then is, who is the book of Jonah about? Well, the prophets almost always are telling stories and preaching messages with one major focus, for Israel to repent. And I think that Jonah falls in line in that tradition. Sure, Je Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches, but, but God's call and the Ninevites' need to repent is the backdrop of the story. It's not the main storyline. In Jonah's story, I think he represents Israel. His sin is their sin. This book's about Jonah and his heart and his repentance. And so it's about Israel and the heart of Israel's people and their need to repent. Now, for us to really get into this story, though, there's a few more things that we need to know about the prophet Jonah. Uh, we actually, I want to tell you, this was a very neat thing and it's very rare um, Jonah was from preaching about 750 B.C., and it is unusual to be able to find a photograph from that time, but I do believe that we have done so, and so we'd like to share this very rare picture of the prophet Jonah from 750 B.C. 
Um, actually, if you're not familiar with what this is, then one, I'm very sorry that you have led the sad life that you've been in the midst of, and someone needs to teach you about VeggieTales, but this is, uh, this is from the VeggieTales telling of the story of Jonah. He did not actually look like that. While I wasn't there to be certain of that, I'm pretty certain that that's not actually what he looked like. But you can look at that and think of Jonah. So he's preaching in about 750 B.C., and he's preaching pretty much or pretty close to the time that Assyria came and destroyed Samaria, the neighbors of Israel, and deported thousands of people and decided that Israel was actually going to be part of their empire. And the Assyrians, they were notorious for being able to control a very large empire with a very small military. And the way they did that was by being so terribly cruel in their tactics and their practices that people were afraid to rebel. So the people that were in the Assyrian empire almost universally hated the Assyrians. And Nineveh is the, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian empire. So it's, it's no surprise that the Israelites felt really, really strongly negatively about the Ninevites. And now, just one more piece of background, and then we're set. I, I want to tell you a little bit about Nineveh. Now, we tend to think of things that are, that are ancient, things that aren't modern, as being really primitive. And so we expect a city like ancient Nineveh to be poor and dirty and just kind of shabby. But, but Nineveh was a great city. It was wealthy, and it was colorful, and it was very large. They think that up to 175,000 people could have lived in the town of Nineveh. We've got a few pictures of Nineveh. And so this is a, this is a picture of, of what ancient Nineveh likely looked like. You can see the walls around the city. The, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an outer wall and an inner wall to protect from attack or, or from enemies. There's a river that runs through it. It's a, it's a really impressive piece of architecture. And this picture is, is likely another angle of what Nineveh would have looked like. And you can really see the wall there. We think of this these, these ancient towns is very primitive, but that wall is probably um, about 30 feet high and about 30 feet deep. It's this massive wall around Nineveh, and the buildings towered over the wall. So they, they were able to make buildings incredibly high in the ancient world. We, we think of things being kind of level and flat and small, and that just wasn't the case. And then the next picture here, I think, just really shows just how beautiful a city this was. It was a, a, a well-known and ancient city. In fact, biblically, we have the story, or a bit of the story, of its beginning. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, Nimrod, after the fall of the Tower of Babel. It's one of the cities that he founded, and we hear about that in Genesis 10. So this is a really, truly ancient city. And one last thing, it's kind of interesting. The name for the city comes from the old name for the goddess Ishtar. Now, Ishtar was the goddess that the Assyrians most often worshipped. She was the goddess most worshipped inside of Nineveh. Do you want to guess what her sign was, kind of the symbol that marked her presence, that described Ishtar? If you just had a picture, how you knew that you were, you were talking about the goddess Ishtar, can you... Think of anything from the book of Jonah that might uh, give you a clue. There's a great big fish. That's not exactly what her sign looked like, but to actually get 
a good picture of that. I'd have had to pay for the image, and I thought this was, this was close enough. But, but Ishtar was symbolized by a fish. And you kind of get this irony in the book of Jonah, right? Like Jonah refuses to go to the great fish city. And so what, is, what does God do? He, he sends the fish to Jonah, right? That's the, it's kind of the, the irony that we would understand if we lived in the ancient world that we miss today. But fish were a very, the, the picture of a fish or the symbol of a fish was a very big part of the story of Nineveh. So, I wanted you to get that background, so now we dive into chapter 3. So Jonah's been vomited out of the fish. Pastor Ben did a great job of, of talking about that story last week. And then he receives another call from God to go to Nineveh and preach. And he obeys, and that's growth, right? The first call comes, and he refuses. He flees in the other direction. The second call comes, and he obeys. And now in keeping with his repentance... Right? If he's the heartfelt repentance we see him have in the belly of the fish, we know what kind of sermon he's going to preach. Because his heart has been changed, he's going to go to the Ninevites and he's going to tell them about this great and loving, compassionate, forgiving God and their need to repent and ask for forgiveness so that they can be forgiven and brought into right fellowship with the God of the universe. Right? That's, that's what we expect a prophet to say, except that Jonah's sermon doesn't say any of that. The, the Jonah's sermon that he preaches in Hebrew is five words long. It's so short that when they translate it into English, they have to add extra words just to make the sentence make sense. Literally, it says this. This is the, the sermon that Jonah preaches all over Nineveh. Forty days until Nineveh falls. And he goes through the town preaching 40 days until Nineveh falls. It's almost as though while he's, he's I think his, his turning to God in the belly of the fish is genuine and real. It's almost as though he hasn't let go of his prejudice and secretly hopes that while he's obeying the letter of God's instruction, it might not be enough to actually bring about Repentance. It's as though Jonah isn't rooting for the Ninevites. And we see that that's exactly the case in chapter 4. Now, there is a whole lot of repentance in this story, in Jonah chapter 3. But it's like two versions of what repentance look like, looks like are juxtaposed with each other to see how they're different. They're, they're kind of connected, one right after the other. And we see the difference in two different acts of repentance. There's Jonah, right? But it's kind of halfway. He obeys, but he's going through the motions. His heart isn't changed. And then we see Nineveh. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10 again. After Jonah preaches his five-word sermon, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. 
But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. In some way, the Ninevites were totally ready for God's message, for the call to repent. And there's this amazing piece, this verse that just kind of leaps out here. The the verse where we see that the king gets off of his throne. I mean, think about it. The king of Nineveh, it might be that that he's a person that's just kind of over the city of Nineveh, or this might be a way of saying the king of the Assyrian Empire. In other words, this may be the most powerful man in the world at the time, or just a very, very powerful man. But either way, he has every human reason to stay seated on his throne and say, who is this Jonah? Who is this God of his? Why? would I need to give up anything or change anything? But he doesn't, he doesn't do this. This king that we know nothing else about it, hum, about him, humbles himself. He models repentance for his people in order to bring them to repentance. The king gets off of his throne and models repentance so that his people will repent. A couple of the pieces of this are just incredible. He sits down in the dust instead of on his throne. He not only puts on sackcloth, but orders everyone else to do it too. Sackcloth was just this very uncomfortable, itchy material that that if you wore, it would just be aggravating and irritating and constantly remind you that it was there. It was impossible to be comfortable in sackcloth. And then everybody fasts, not just all the people, but all the animals too. This isn't just repentance, this is repentance in its biggest form. He's calling for everybody and everything to change. It's absolute repentance. We talk about repentance being a turning toward God. We not only turn away from something, but we we turn toward Him. And repentance is a thing that you don't just do once. We Christians know that that in the course of our lives, we repent over and over and over again. And we know what it means to do it halfway, don't we? Perhaps we're confronted about something, or perhaps we we feel guilty about some sin or practice that we, we find in our hearts that we've acted out. And we know that it's wrong, and so we, 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 put, we put forward the, the right words and we turn. But you know what? We, we don't make any changes in our life in such a way that we're unlikely to fall back into it. Perhaps we're, we're, we're having a hard time with what we're doing on a computer, but we're unwilling to let the computer go. Or, or perhaps we're having a hard time with the way we're using our phone, and we feel like there's a sin involved in that, but we're unwilling to let it go, or, or maybe there's a relationship that, that has a rift in it, and you're angry, and you're bitter, but you're unwilling to go to the person and ask for forgiveness or to reconcile. So we, we ask God to forgive our sin, and we turn, 
but we hold on to the seeds of the sin in the first place. That's what Jonah did. The turning is real. We, we really, in that moment, do want to, to apologize, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and we want to be better, but we, we also want to hold on to the things in our lives and in our hearts which do not honor Him. But then there's this other view of repentance, a king getting off of his throne and sitting in the dust, putting on sackcloth. You do not need to put on sackcloth when you repent. But I wonder what would happen if you did. Could you imagine something that would be a constant reminder to you, a constant discomfort that would remind you that the way you've been is not the way God calls you to be? You don't need to fast when you repent, but could you imagine that if you did, the way the hunger would reinforce over and over again God's desire for you, which is so much better than the way that you've been, the action you've been taking, the life that you've been leading. And this isn't an underhanded way to say that if you're really going to repent, you need sackcloth in fasting. What it is, is an encouragement to see two acts of repentance and how they're different. The Ninevites repent absolutely. And again, I don't think they're the main subject of the story. I think their repentance shows us how incomplete Jonah's was. Jonah goes through the motions, but the king truly humbles himself. One of the things we see from Jonah here is that sometimes, sometimes repentance is, is done without that emotional conviction without that, that deep desire for us to change. And, and we can't help what we feel, right? I may know that this thing in my life is wrong. I may know that it doesn't honor God, but I can't make myself feel passionate about changing. So I, I go through the motions, right? I, I, I ask God for forgiveness, and I make a commitment to turn. And I struggle, and I kind of have this apathy, and maybe you know what I'm talking about. We go through these seasons in our life, perhaps, where, where God is present and we're on fire and we're passionate and, and finding Him and spending time with Him is easy. We go through these other times where He just feels far away. And even our acts of repentance don't have the passion we wish that they had. And while that's something all of us experience and you can't control what you feel. And if you're not sure about that, you can just pick an emotion and sit there and try to feel it. That's not, that's not how it works. But our passion for God is kind of like a fire. In fact, we often say that a person who's, who's feeling very passionate about God is on fire, right? And the thing about a fire is if you, if you have a fire and you let it sit and you don't do anything with it, What's going to happen eventually? It's going gonna, it's gonna to die down, right? Well, it might spread out of control, but that's not the example. It, 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 it dies down, right? What do you have to do to keep a fire going? You have to tend it. You have to nurture it. You have to give it the things it needs to continue. Our passion for God works that way. Perhaps you found that, that there's some sin, some struggle that you're having, and you've, you've repented, you've committed to turning toward God, and you just keep going back, and, and, and the guilt that you feel gets less 
and less, and the, the felt need to repent gets less and less, and it just gets harder. I want to encourage you that you have to tend the fire. You have to do those things that make you feel connected to God. And it's different for every person. For some of us, it might be the the traditional devotions. You, You read your Bible and you pray. And I want to say, even if that's not what fills you up, you do need to be doing those things. We need to be in God's Word and we need to be spending time with Him. But maybe it's something different. Maybe you need to go for a walk and just have a conversation with Him. Maybe you need to confess something to someone to get it out in the open so that it's not hidden any longer. Only you know what the things are that kind of stir up your passion for God. But, but when it's burning, we have to continue to tend it. We have to continue to nurture it. And what I think we'll find if we do that, if we make our hearts ready for God's call, we'll look more like the Ninevites than like Jonah which is part of the irony of the story, right? We, we want to be more like the pagans than the Israelite. But their repentance is absolute. It's passionate. It's full and complete. They were ready for God's message when it came. The fire had been tended. Repentance requires us to turn toward God. That's what repentance is. But it also requires us to nurture a heartfelt passion for His will. And here's the other incredible thing about the story. If you're looking for for a start, if you're looking for a place to, to reignite that fire, that passion, that excitement for God, this story, in part, is about a king who got off of his throne, who sat down in the dust, who put on something terribly uncomfortable as a model for his people. And we worship a God who fits that picture as well. Our Lord Jesus Christ got off of his throne, put on an uncomfortable humanity, and you know it was a lot less comfortable to be human than not. And he sat down in the dust with us. The model he gives us for turning and living toward God is incredible and precious. And it's a place to reignite a passion for God. If you need to know where to go to to restart the fire, I want to point you towards the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. And he not only showed us what it looked like to live a life completely devoted and submitted perfectly to God. He also made it possible for us to repent over and over again, to make mistakes and stumble over and over again, and every time be able to find forgiveness again. Forgiveness that doesn't go away just because we've made a mistake that's ours forever, that's absolute, that's complete. And he made it possible for us to find an eternal life through Him, with the Father. It's an incredible picture of a king getting off of his throne. Repentance requires us to turn toward God. Are you turned toward Him this morning?
Is there anything going on that you need to repent of? That you need to confess to Him and commit once again to turn toward and follow His will. But it doesn't stop there. It also requires us to nurture a heartfelt passion for Him. You've got to tend the fire. Are you tending the fire? Are you doing things in your life intentionally to keep your passion alive? I want to encourage you to do so. And if you're struggling, that doesn't mean that you're bad or you've, you've done some terrible thing or that God is truly far away. I'd love to talk to you about if that's something you're struggling with. But we're called to tend the fire and He is faithful. Every time we go through a period where he feels far away, it is followed at some point over time by a strong sense of his presence. And so I want to encourage you toward that this morning. To turn toward God and to nurture a heartfelt passion for his will. Pray with me. Father God, you are amazing. We love you and we praise you this morning. And we ask for you to be with us. Lord, we ask for the gift of an unending excitement and energy and passion for you. Lord, some of us here are there. Some of us are, are on fire. And you're more real and present to us than you've ever been before. Lord, some of us that are here this morning are struggling. You feel far away. Lord, we just ask for the, the gift of a sense of your closeness, a sense of your presence, and that you'd empower us and encourage us and convict us to tend the fire. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.